Welcome to Like Flint Radio, this is your host GK. In this episode, Cliff and I are talking to Derek Gilbert from PID Radio and View from the Bunker. We're going to be talking to Derek about a wide range of topics here. Uh, we're going to discuss Dominionism, uh, Hebrew Roots Movement, anti-Semitism. We're also going to talk about the current events in Syria, and we're going to have a bit of a side discussion there about Israel. Uh, we're going to talk about transhumanism, and also part of that discussion will be uh, we'll be touching on uh, eugenics. And finally, and I hope you stay around for this because it's at the back end. We're going to be talking about dark swans and koi wolves. So stay with us here on LikeFlintRadio.com. Alrighty, welcome to Like Flint Radio. I'm your host GK. Uh, with us all the way from Denny's is my co-host Cliff Garner. He's going to be joining us in a second. Um, well, today, tonight, uh, it's past midnight for me, but it's uh, morning for both Derek and Cliff. We're going to be talking to Derek Gilbert. So welcome to Like Flint Radio for the first time, Derek Gilbert. It's my honor to be here. Thanks for asking. Thanks for coming on board. Uh, really pleased to have you on at last. Uh, we did speak to you on one of the back-end shows of Future Quake Southern Hemisphere, so it's, it's been a while since we've spoken to you. And I know a lot has been happening for you and Sharon, so could you just give us a quick overview of what's new happening for you guys, and then uh, we'll get into the topics that Cliff has planned for us tonight. Well, we've been... Uh producing PID Radio, our, our podcast, since uh, March of 2005. But in March of this year, uh, we accepted a, an offer, an opportunity to uh, relocate from, uh, from actually uh, not far from where Cliff is uh, sitting right now in uh, Illinois and moved uh, further west to the Missouri Ozarks to partner with Tom Horn in his ministry, uh, a new venture called Skywatch TV. Tom has been producing or publishing Bible prophecy books for some years now. He's actually, according to Amazon, become, uh, I think, the largest publisher of Bible prophecy books in the country, uh, the United States. But he's wanted to launch a media ministry to kind of go along with that. Uh, and uh, media is my background. I began in broadcasting in 1980 while I was still in college. Uh, got out of broadcasting in the early 90s because I realized it was a lousy way to raise a family. Had my midlife crisis, went back in in 2006, long enough to remember why I left broadcasting <laughs> the first time. And we've been focusing on our podcasts from uh, uh, our home for, uh, like I said, the last 10 years. But uh, since March, we've uh, been here in the uh, beautiful Missouri Ozarks, and uh, we produce video content for Skywatch TV. Uh, we're continuing our regular podcasts, and uh, Sharon will soon be hosting a, uh, a women's program, uh, the working concept being a Christian version of The View, although I think Based on ladies involved, uh, Sharon having a degree with honors in molecular biology and uh, some of the other ladies involved, uh, Donna Howell probably, who uh, authored a very important book uh, last year called uh, Redeemed Unredeemable, uh, 
some deep thinkers in that group. So it's not going to be talking just about, you know, fashions and, and entertainment and right, stuff like that. Right. No. There. <laughs> no, so that, 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 that look, sounds fantastic. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, I suppose there'll be a lot of people looking forward to that. Um, uh, if you've ever watched The View, you'd be looking for something else to watch. Just my humble opinion. Uh, just putting it out there. Um, uh, but, um, Derek, before we move on and I hand you over to Cliff because uh, he's chomping at the bit, bit with a question for you, can you tell us a little bit about the Skywatch TV? What What's on Skywatch TV and what's your part in it? Well, I uh, host the uh, the daily news updates, which generally run 10 to 15 minutes, um, and also the weekly 30-minute program, Skywatch TV uh the weekly program focuses on uh, topics you don't generally find on Christian television. Uh, it's currently on the Christian television network. We'll soon be on other uh, networks. I believe we're, we're looking at the church channel and uh, one or two others uh, that since I'm not certain about, I won't mention any names, but right, I know the church right, right. Channel is one for sure that we're, uh, that we're looking at, but uh, it's, it's a, a look at uh, geopolitics, prophecy, uh, discoveries with an eye toward, uh, uh, investigating the supernatural realm, which as believers we acknowledge by default. Um, if you're a Christian and you believe in an you know omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, uh, invisible deity who spoke the universe into existence by default, <laughs> you you believe in the supernatural realm. You know, so uh, why is it that uh, so many in the church tend to look for naturalistic? Uh, explanations or solutions, or tend to view the gospel as nothing more than uh, life coaching. Right. I mean, we're we're in the middle of a spiritual battle, a supernatural battlefield, whether we acknowledge it or not, and uh, that's kind of what we're looking at. So we'll talk about uh, uh, you know demons, UFOs, uh, even political conspiracies, acknowledging that uh, the uh, the real drivers of those conspiracies are the principalities, powers, thrones, and dominions that the Apostle Paul wrote about. Intelligent evil is real, seeks to do us harm. But but as believers, you know, we understand greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. And so, you know, that's kind of how we're looking at it. Yes, these things are real, and there are bad things happening, and the ride is going to get rougher as we get closer to the end. But the good news is we're in his hands, and he is in control. So, you know, we're not trying to spread a spirit of fear, um, which you can you can find all too easily. There are all kinds of conspiracy corners on the internet you can go to to get your adrenaline fix. Yeah, <laughs> and I just tell you, Derek, you're the uh, I you're my second interview in a couple of weeks, and the last person I interviewed qu- quoted that very same scripture to me that you just quoted. So there's something going on, maybe not just for me, but maybe for our audience about you know he that it is in us is greater than he that is in the world, but. Um, uh, for now, let's draw our, uh, my co-host in, Cliff Garner. Cliff. Okay. Uh, hey, <laughs> how's it going? Uh, well, well, uh, we were, we were talking about, uh, uh, dominionism, uh, and, uh, how it, uh, is, is kind of a, a political heresy in a, in a certain sense, uh, and that, uh, that this, uh, movement is, uh, uh, picking up steam, as it were, because I, I, I think I think that, that, that it's part of the driving forces uh, that are going to uh, emerge for Antichrist. And, uh, and and Derek and I have talked about this before um, uh, in person. And uh, and uh, at any rate, I, I I know that Derek has done some great research in this, and that uh, I'd love to hear what he'd have to say about it and how well, it's, it's developing well, it's- now. It's very timely because obviously we're into the election cycle for the 2016 uh, presidential 
race. And uh, we Christians are, are hearing again, uh, which I think we've heard every four years since uh, 1992, that this is a, the last chance, this is our last chance to try to rescue America from the, the clutches of uh, uh, creeping secularism. And I, I think that that ship has already sailed, frankly. Uh, but more than that, I don't think we were ever going to solve the spiritual problems of um, morality, sin, at the ballot box. Uh, we, uh, evangelical Christians in America, who tend to be conservative uh, and very patriotic, have been convinced that uh, we can use the political process to advance the gospel. And that really is, it's, it's, it's foolish to believe so. Secondly, it's not scriptural to believe so. Jesus never advocated political activity as a means to addressing the problem. When he told the apostles or the disciples to go you know, spread the gospel to all nations, he didn't say go forth and form political action committees. Uh, in, in fact, and Gary Stearman made this observation in, a, in an article that I read from a couple of years ago, uh, in the garden, when Jesus was set upon by a group of um, uh, Jews and Romans to arrest him unjustly, uh, he didn't say, you know, rise up in, in re- revolution. In fact, when, when Peter took his sword and cut off the ear of the, uh, the high priest's servant, Jesus told Peter to put the sword away and he healed the servant's ear, which I think is uh, indicative of uh, his, Jesus' uh, attitude about a, a political or a violent solution to the uh, the problem of uh, injustice and sin. Um, we're trying to impose a top-down solution at the ballot box. We're trying to impose our system of morality, or a Judeo-Christian system of morality, more accurately, onto people who don't accept the authority of the Bible. Uh, rather than trying to change their hearts by preaching the gospel and sharing with people the good news and why they should believe that the Word of God is accurate and authentically uh, has been authentically copied over the last several millennia. Um, until people's hearts are changed, no system of uh, morality or law will uh, keep people behaving the way we want them to behave unless it's enforced with uh, the gun. Uh, so we're either... Uh, well, I'm going too deep into it, but uh, basically, uh, I, I think evangelical Christians are too eager to use the ballot box as a solution to the problem rather than preaching the gospel, which is what we were told. Uh, but more than that, when you take that to its extreme, there is a segment of the hyper-charismatic movement that literally believes that Jesus will not and cannot return until we reclaim the earth for him. Uh, this is based on a misinterpretation of Psalm 110, verse 1, which says that the, you know, the Lord said to my Lord, remain at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool beneath your feet. And, um, uh, it, you know, to those of us hearing this the first time, we think, well, that's, that's crazy. Nobody, you know, would, would interpret that to mean that way. But, yes, I've got video clips of uh, Dominionist teachers saying that that's exactly what that means, that um, we look around at the world around us, we can see the moral decay, which means that uh, the enemies of God have not been made a footstool underneath his feet, and until... We bring them under control. We subject them. We defeat them. Jesus is stuck in heaven, and he cannot possibly return. Uh, more than that, there are other teachers in this movement who uh, believe that the uh, the judgment of the sheep and the goats uh, described in the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew 25, if I remember correctly, um, where you know all the nations are gathered before him, and he separates out the righteous as sheep and the, the, uh, the faithless as goats and sends the goats off to destruction. Um, the, the text says uh, 
the nations are assembled and he, and he judges the people of the nations. Uh, there are teachers out there who are telling people that that literally means nations. And so you'd better make sure that your nation is a sheep nation and not a goat nation. Because God is not separating, Jesus won't be separating out people one from another. He'll be separating out nations one from another. Now, there are a couple problems with that. First of all, that that uh, judgment takes place uh, after the rapture. Okay. Uh, and secondly, well... Again, going going too deep. It, very simple, simple terms. Uh, it doesn't make any sense on its face. Uh, Jesus is clearly not going to uh, judge nations one from another based on a preponderance of uh, believers versus unbelievers in the population. Uh, we are all responsible for our own decisions. We are not responsible for the decisions of our neighbors around us. We're responsible for preaching the gospel to them, but it's up to them. God gave us all free will to choose to accept him as Lord and Savior or not. Um, but there are teachers out there who are teaching people that their salvation literally depends on being in a sheep nation. And I can only imagine the um, motivation that would give somebody to try to take over the political, cultural, economic, military uh, reins of power in their nation if they believe their eternal salvation literally depends on whether or not the majority of the people in that nation accept God's standards of behavior. Um now, again, for people hearing this the first time, it sounds crazy, and, it, and you'd be liable, and understandably so, to d- dismiss this as a fringe teaching, that nobody could possibly fall for this, and that this is not uh, nothing to be concerned about, because uh, clearly nobody rational would, would accept this. And yet those who are teaching this, who are prominent in this dominionist movement, uh, which is loosely... Uh, you know, affiliated with with a movement called the New Apostolic Reformation. Um, But uh, leaders within that movement have been making some very interesting uh, political alliances with those, uh, especially on the political right in the United States, uh, laying hands on uh, political candidates and, uh, you know, praying over them. Uh, In fact, one of the candidates for president, Republican candidates, his father is a very prominent pastor in this uh, hyper charismatic new apostolic reformation. Um, That doesn't mean necessarily that Senator Cruz is going to try to take over the world so that Jesus can return. But it just indicates that this this these teachings are more influential in modern evangelical Christianity than we like to believe. Uh, just to give you a, one quick example, because I know I'm dominating the conversation here, but uh, the uh, there is a teaching among believers in this dominionist movement that we need to reclaim something that they call the seven mountains of culture or the seven uh, centers of power of, of culture, uh, arts and entertainment, uh, business, uh, education, uh, the family, uh, government and uh, religion, and I, I think that's well. So maybe I left one out, but uh, yeah, meat is another one. But anyway, these seven mountains—they say we need to reclaim all seven of those mountains. We Christians need to take dominion over those seven centers of culture within the uh, within civilization uh, in order to uh, you know reclaim. Uh, the world for God. And there's no doubt that if we were to reclaim those seven centers of culture those seven cultural mountains, we would uh, be able to direct culture. But uh, again, that's not what we're called to do in Scripture. We're not called to you know, take control of the media or take control of business. Uh, it's arts and entertainment, business, education, the family, government, media. That's, that's the one I was missing, yes. media yes. Uh, and religion. 
Um, can I just ask you, Derek, while you're on this topic and you're on a bit of a roll here, would some of these people um, view uh, nations like or especially the United States as having some form of a covenantal-like relationship with God? Is that Would it go extend that far? Yes, it would, yeah. Um, and there is a belief uh, – this belief system is actually predicated upon uh, replacement theology, a belief that there is no role for Israel in um, – in the end times, um, and so their their belief then is that uh, we are Israel, um, and, and that's a, and that's a dangerous belief system. In fact, a, a listener to our, our program, our podcast, uh, a couple of months ago, sent me a book that Hal Lindsey wrote about twenty five years ago on the dangers of Dominion theology and how it is uh, leading to another Holocaust. In fact, the book is called the The Road to Holocaust. Yeah, uh, Lindsay and also Dr. Tommy Ice, who uh, uh, Hal cites in the book quite frequently, uh, saw this coming 25 years ago, and I, I give him a lot of credit. Um, and that's, I think, responsible, or at least those charges of replacement theology are at least partly responsible for a new movement that I see within the Dominionist movement, which is uh, uh, called One New Man. Uh, and this is based on Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus and essentially saying, I know that the Jews have been uh, treating you Gentiles badly, um, and uh, they've been telling you you need to do all of these, th- you know, you basically need to become Jews in order to get saved. They said that's not true. When Jesus uh, w- died, he basically tore down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. So there is no, no longer n- there is no longer Jew or Gentile within the body of Christ, but one new man. Now, this took place at the resurrection, but those in this movement are seeing it as prophetic. They believe that there will be a new body of believers called one new man, and that new body of believers, Jew and Gentile believers, uh, will inherit the land promised to Abraham and all of the other promises that God made to Israel about restoring the Davidic uh, uh, kingdom. Uh, And again, the the land promised to Abraham, which... uh, in the current political climate would be just a little problematic since it includes, uh, you know, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, uh, <laughs> parts of Iraq, possibly even parts of Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, if you, uh, you know, depending on how you interpret the prophecy. Um, but they literally believe that this is, this is what's going to happen. And you're seeing more and more uh, of uh, these one new man congregations. There's a one new man Bible that's been put out there, a one new man Bible, tra- which, uh, uh, you know, purports to, uh, uh, translate the New Testament from the original Aramaic, which again is problematic because it was originally written in Greek, not Aramaic. But, you know, anyway. Um, yeah, and, and again, just to circle back to the point that I didn't quite finish earlier, that the, the seven cultural mountains that we're supposed to take, uh, the National Day of Prayer here in the United States, which is a uh, an annual event, um, and the wife of Dr. James Dobson has served as uh, the chairperson for this for several years um, actually asks people to pray for the seven centers of power in, uh, in America. So now I don't believe that, uh, that James and Shirley Dobson believe we need to take over the world. It's just illustrating. And many other evangelical leaders will support the national day of prayer. And certainly there's nothing wrong with praying for our leaders. In fact, that's scriptural. We were talking about this before the program, praying for leaders in power even if you don't like them. Um, but the fact that they've got the seven centers of power that we're supposed to pray for, which are identical to the seven cultural mountains that the Dominionists believe we need to take 
so that Jesus can return is, I think, revealing. These dominionists have more influence. They're making inroads into mainstream evangelical Christianity here in the United States, and people don't even know it. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I've got a, a couple things that might actually back up a little bit. But uh, the, the thing I keep thinking when I, when I hear all this, you know, I keep thinking of Jonathan Kahn and how he uh, has, uh, has that uh, uh, covenantal idea of America with God. And that how America is, in, in a certain sense, the new Israel, you know. And, 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 and when we look at, you know, people like uh, uh, Bacon, who was writing back in the 1600s, that, that these people were also kind of seeing America in the same way. And that this, uh, this ties in with Rosicrucianism, you know. Uh, the, the, the idea that, uh, that the U.S., uh, or, or actually the landmass here, uh, is, is somehow the, the new Jerusalem. And this uh, th- this whole thing really does lend itself to a legalistic kind of idea, you know, and, and, and it goes from Khan to uh, all the others, you know, the blood moons and everything else. So the underlying assumptions are still kind of really similar, it, including this one one new man thing, uh, which uh, the Hebrew roots people have really picked up on. And, yes, uh, yes. And, and not only that, they, they've also picked up on that Aramaic... Uh, uh, Translation of the Bible, and and and, uh, and our previous guest, uh, he he uh, he had uh, talked quite a bit about it in, uh, on his own programs. The that uh, that the translation that they're using is actually not a very good one, and uh, that the New Agers are, are using it also. I, I, I forget it. A lot, I, I can't think of the guy's name now. Uh, it, it starts with an L, I think. But but. Uh, he he uh, translated uh, translated the Bible into Aramaic, and uh, they they created a, a thing called the Aramaic English New Testament, and that's uh, that's been circulating with both uh, both sides of this thing, you know, the, the Hebrew roots and with uh, with the uh, Dominionist people, right. and right. and uh, that this thing uh, actually uh, the rude. And uh, Michael Rood and and his old cult, the the Way International, were the ones that picked up on that book and started popularizing it. Uh, so 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 I see all this kind of coming coming together here, and uh, and I know that you've you've looked into this a lot yourself, uh, Derek. And, uh, and, and uh, have, have you have you found out more on, on this this angle? I have not. It's something I plan to do more research on because I'd like to get a book uh, together about this before the election. Uh, and just to be clear to, to people, I'm not uh, advocating that we step back from the political process. It's kind of hard to influence the culture if we hide behind the walls of a compound. But um, we just need to understand that our salvation and the salvation of our nation uh, is not going to come by electing Jesus into the White House, because that's not going to happen. Um, the uh, we, our, our mission as, as believers is to preach the gospel to all nations and not get caught up in politics, uh, which is uh, stepping down from a higher calling. Um, in fact, that's one reason we don't talk a lot of partisan politics uh, on Skywatch TV, uh, because we don't place our faith in one political party or another. Uh, both are, are um, means to an end for uh, the, the principalities and powers. But uh, no, the, uh, 
uh, I'm hoping over the holidays to have more time to dig into this some more and, and, and look at this. But you're right, uh, Cliff, that there is does seem to be a, a confluence of uh, the, the Dominionist movement and the Hebrew Roots movement in the, uh, the birth of this whole one new man thing. In fact, there was a movie last year, and I need to finally get around to ordering a copy so I can watch it for myself. I haven't seen it yet, called uh, Let the Lion Roar, which was uh, purportedly a documentary about how the early – well, about how the reformers basically derailed Christianity, uh, how uh, John Calvin and Martin Luther were so anti-Semitic that they stripped the Christian faith of its um, Hebrew roots and that we need to rediscover those Hebrew roots if the church is to fulfill its actual destiny. And I find that to be borderline uh, heretical, saying that uh, because we are, aren't as Hebrew-centric as we ought to be in the Christian church, and, and I admit that we, we don't understand as much of the Hebrew roots of the faith as we should, but uh, to say that the church will be unable to fulfill its destiny until we go back and begin um, you know, whatever, you know, keeping the feasts or whatever, is, is I think, uh, heretical. Um, and there was actually, it was, and, and number of the, a number of those that are connected to this film or were part of this film, uh, are active teachers of this one new man doctrine. And in fact, if you look at the IMDB uh, listing for the film, Let the Lion Roar, there's actually a character in the film named One New Man. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. It, it, you, know, you know, the thing there, though, is the, the great irony is that the, the whole Reformation was originally uh, spurred by, by a lot of the uh, knowledge that was coming from uh, the East, you know, particularly with the Greek, but but you know, a lot of people underestimate how much Hebrew was involved in that. Uh, that's that's why the Kabbalah uh, was finally exposed to Western uh, thinking. You know, it came out of the Jewish community and it entered into uh, the broader society. And and a lot of the Reformation can be uh, traced to this this movement. And uh, we've we've uh, uh, Garth and I have talked about this a lot. Uh, that that there was. Uh, a lot of this uh, kind of cross-pollination that was going on, and that that part of uh, the the return of the Jews to England in in the 1600s uh, is directly the the consequence of of, uh, of the Puritan movement and how how they uh, actually were Judaizers. Hmm. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, and uh, as. Uh, I, I, well, again, Garth and I were talking a little bit about this prior to the broadcast, but I think that um, whenever you, if you define a cult as any movement that says you need to add something to uh, the the grace offered by by God when you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you basically could define that movement as a cult. So uh, uh, you, you're treading in, into the area of uh, cult like behavior when you start saying you need to uh, do this. You know, you know, believing in Jesus is the first step, but then you need to do this, this, and this to really cement your salvation. And, and I know that the, most of the folks in the Hebrew Roots movement wouldn't would not say that they're they're asking for anything more than faith in Jesus Christ, or that anything more is required for for salvation. Um, but but there are are some who who really push that envelope enough to make me uncomfortable. I, I, I should correct a statement that I made earlier, by the way. This One New Man Bible does not translate from the Aramaic. It does translate from uh, the United Bible Society's 4th uh, edition Greek text. So uh, that was uh, I was in error in that statement. But there is a Bible out there I know that uh, is promoted uh, as being a translation from 
the original Aramaic, and you know, just have to roll your eyes when you you see that because, uh, again, just a basic understanding of history, you know that the Bible was written in Greek, not not Aramaic, the New Testament, that is. So, um, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's the A E N T, the Aramaic English New Testament. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, and, and it's uh, it's been out there for a while. I, I think there's another one now too, um, uh, but uh, but that A E N T uh, kind of got a jump on everything else and uh, kind of dominated the market. Yeah, but this one new man teaching is something I've been kind of watching because it seems to be a new development, and I, I suspect. And again, I'm, I'm slow in not having ordered this uh, film already for our reference, uh, that uh, Let the Lion Roar was a film released to help propagate this idea of, of one new man and the idea that we need to return to those Hebrew roots, uh, you know, whatever that means. And again, not having seen the film, I can't speak uh, with, with any expertise on it. But I, I did think it was interesting that uh, a number of the teachers that I've seen who are promoting the concept were involved in the teaching. The uh, promotional materials for this film uh, advertise that the church has been robbed of its power by this uh, 2,000-year-old demonic conspiracy to strip the Hebrew roots of the Christian faith out of the uh, uh, the church. And um, and then again, just seeing that uh, that character named One New Man as part of the cast, I thought was, well, okay. <laughs> that, that's a clue, if nothing else. Can, can I ask you both a question? Um, um I'm trying to think of another term to use other than devil's advocate because I don't actually like that one. But um, if I could just play, a, uh, say, an oppositional role and ask you both this one question. Um, the topics we're discussing here, could we, okay. could we be mistaken for being anti-Semitic in any way? Um, if you know what I'm trying to ask you. Sure. No, I, I uh, and I hope not. And But I think that's a good question to ask, because uh, I'm sure you noticed this as well, that when you look at some of the conspiratorial corners on the Internet where you, you find Christians who are trying to dig a little deeper into the uh, uh, the root causes of things that we see happening in the world around us, you know, geopolitics uh, and so forth, there does seem to be a pretty virulent uh, anti-Semitic strain in some of this. I, I get... Um, Emails from people directing me to, uh, you know, certain websites that uh, supposedly are, are good sources for behind the scenes, behind the curtain information. But there, there, there's a, a real anti-Semitic thread running through it. So um, it's it's worth asking the question. Uh, I would say n- no. At least I hope people won't interpret what I'm saying in that way because I do believe, it, it, if anything, the contrary because. God is not done with with the nation of Israel. I mean, Scripture, I think prophecy tells us very clearly that there is a role for Israel yet to play. Uh, there are people who will uh, will protest that the uh, restoration of the nation of Israel in the 1940s was uh, uh, a Freemasonic conspiracy, blah, blah, blah. But, well, you know, so what? I mean, God used pagan nations in the Old Testament to correct Israel all the time. Uh, we are told in prophecy that there's certain things that have to happen yet that could not have happened without a nation state of Israel existing in the Holy Land. And regardless of how it took place, it is there. God prophesied that it would happen. Um, I don't pretend to know who, uh, you know, wh- where that d- d- dividing line exists between the geopolitical entity Israel and God's chosen people. Right. Right. The government of Israel is every bit as secular and as flawed as what we have here in the United States or anywhere else in the world. But, I, I agree. Uh, I, I agree. Yeah. And I think um, 
you have to have uh, very, very strongly tinted rose-coloured glasses to miss that point. Um, and uh, see, I asked this question, and, and I'm agreeing strongly with you there, Derek, because... Um, you know, th- there was a time I would have been one of those people wh- who would have thought, well, is- Israel can do no wrong. And, yeah, yeah. uh, <laughs> and I got to say, I've had to step back from that a, f- a bit, but not to the point where, uh, I joined the anti-Semitic crowd. Cliff, what was your thoughts to my question? Well, okay. I, I, yeah, I agree 100% with uh, Derek, too. Uh, and, and, and the thing, the thing that, uh, about it is, is that, uh, while while uh, a lot of times the uh, Hebrew roots people will accuse us of being uh, anti-Semitic by by criticizing them, and 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 and, and, and let, let me uh, back up just a second and, and, and point out there is a really serious difference between the Hebrew roots movement and the uh, Messianic uh, Jewish movement. Yes, uh, yes. there's a huge difference. And, and and they're like night and day when you really come down to it, uh, and and the, and the two of them try to try to get along, but they can't uh, because the Hebrew roots people are far too legalistic. They're mostly Gentile, and and they're they're also replacing Israel. A lot of times, <clears throat> the people that get involved with this, uh, the Hebrew roots, uh, aren't aware of how much. Uh, replacement theology has entered into a lot of things like, say, Khan, for example. And, and Mr. Khan probably doesn't, uh, didn't have that intention when he started doing the, the whole thing with, uh, with the Harbinger. But it does go along with this, this replacement theology. It, it, it fits into it perfectly. It puts America up against, uh, Israel and put, and says that America is the New Jerusalem. We are co- the covenant nation. And, and and that's that's not true. Uh, not only that, you ha- you have a you have a certain uh, strain of a the far right, uh, uh, really neo Nazi uh, influence from the uh, uh, what what you call the, uh, the Christian identity movement that has entered into this. And and they they, they had all along been saying they, that that the uh, the British Anglo Israel kind of thing. Uh, that the 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 British are the true Jews, and that the Jews are the Khazars, and now now you have a you have a a, a parallel uh, movement in the black community that's doing the same thing. Uh, these these are these are more anti-Semitic than anybody that's criticizing the the Hebrew roots movement as, as a as a uh, whole, and and and. Uh, and, and it's fine if a person wants to, you know, you know, go, you know, explore the, uh, uh, you know, the the, the 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 Jewish holidays, you know, things like that. That's fine. Uh, if you want to, if you don't want to eat pork, that's fine too. You know, th- those kinds of things. There's just nothing wrong with them. But the law doesn't say. It's not capable of doing that. And and so. What we have is that we have a, a movement that, that is actually trying to replace the church and replace Israel at the same time. And, and I think that's that's not just uh, crazy, but it's it's insidious. And, yeah, and if it's... You're absolutely, no, you're absolutely, you're right, absolutely right, And I, what I think is that the one thing is, that is trying to inoculate itself against the charge of replacement theology. 
by saying, no, 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 we're not replacement theologians. We're all going to be part of this one new man. The Jew, There won't be any Jews. There won't be any Christians anymore because there will all be one new man. And that's how they get around the charge of being replacement theologians, buying into replacement buying theologians. Exactly. Exactly. It's scary. Yeah, one that one that definitely worth watching because it is uh, a uh, as you say it's insidious. Yes, and uh, one for uh, those of us who don't know a lot about it to go out and research a little bit more, especially uh, this one new man idea. One one of the things that uh, been been doing a lot of research on lately is just because of the, the situation in the Middle East uh, with the uh, the war in in Syria going into its uh, fourth year, and you know what, four and a half million people being. Um, Displaced from their homes, the Christian communities in, in the Middle East, uh, Syria and Iraq being absolutely destroyed. Uh, Russia's entry into the, uh, the the Syrian conflict right now, it, from a geopolitical standpoint, you know, as much as I hate to say this, <laughs> you almost wish that we had somebody like Vladimir Putin in, in the White House. Um, not because I think he's, he's a righteous man or anything like that, but uh, at least he's doing what... Uh, He's making intelligent moves that will benefit the people he's responsible for. Uh, in, in well, the, uh, from the geopolitical yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I was just going to add that uh, that, that uh, with with the situation in Turkey, the way it, the way it had been, you know, and we we've talked about this a lot. That that really what we're doing, kind of, uh, because we're not really doing anything. We're just sitting there. Or we're watching, basically watching the Turks kill Kurds. They're not going after ISIS. Russia is. Right. And, and, and I, I think that's interesting, yeah. Are getting, well, they're getting stranger. It's almost surreal in, in watching what's happened in, in Syria over the last month or so. And, of course, from a political standpoint, anytime you've got fighting in that part of the world, you begin to wonder, okay, is this... The one that kicks off uh, a Psalm 83 war, or is this the start of Ezekiel 38? Uh, I, I saw a couple of weeks ago that a prominent um, Orthodox rabbi is saying that he believes this is the start of Ezekiel 38, the Gog-Magog conflict. But he said that because he believes that God has extended the borders of Jerusalem all the way to Damascus. So the fighting taking place in Damascus is really, you know, counts as fighting in the land of unwalled villages, meaning Israel. Um, yeah, I don't think so. But uh, is uh, the, the the threat that it could extend into Israel is very real because uh, some of the the conflict is taking place just across the border from uh, Israel in the Golan Heights. Um, there are rebel enclaves that are being pounded by uh, government forces uh, just on the uh, Syrian side of the Golan Heights. Um, so you know what what is really taking place there? Turkey obviously has its own agenda, as as Cliff can attest to from having lived there for some quite some time. Uh, they're they're going after the Kurds. The United States is ostensibly there to overthrow Assad, but also to put a lid on the uh, the Islamic State. Uh, however, it appears from our uh, lack the lack of results that we've achieved over the last year. And the most powerful air force on you know military on earth, we've not been able to uh, slow down the Islamic State at all. Uh, now that we find out that the uh, the intelligence reports that were making it to the White House were uh, doctored to make it appear as though we things were happening that really weren't, which is a sh- you know just echoes of Vietnam. The same thing happened happened in Vietnam. Um, Derek, Derek, can you give us an example of what they might be? Well, yeah, uh, the. Um, 
there there were uh, intelligence analysts working for U.S. CENTCOM. Uh, Central Command is the uh, military command of the United States responsible for the Middle East. And intelligence analysts working for CENTCOM finally got together and went public and said, look, we were telling the Pentagon and the White House that our air attacks weren't having any significant impact. And reports that were critical of the results that we supposedly desired were uh, analysts were pressured to rewrite them, to uh, cite multiple sources of information, whereas uh, an analyses that were favorable to the U.S. military and said that, yes, we're, we're degrading the capabilities of the Islamic State, were sent right up the chain of command, right to the White House without any modification. So, I mean, the message was very clear. If you want to curry favor with your bosses, with your commanding officers, you will write reports that suggest we are winning the war against the Islamic State. And uh, I'm reading a book now by an author I recently interviewed, Annie Jacobson, investigative uh, journalist, whose new book is a history of DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, uh, the, the group inside the Pentagon. The book is called The Pentagon's Brain which describes DARPA. Basically, they're the group who are looking for cutting-edge military technology to give us an edge in the next major conflict. Um, Interesting things in that book. We found out they started developing drone technology in the 1950s and that drones were deployed during Vietnam. We just didn't find out that the U.S. was actually deploying drones to the battlefield until uh, 2003 when we went into Iraq. And we started hearing about Predator drones and Reaper drones and so forth. But they've been around since the 60s. and, and a similar thing could be said about the first Iraq war when they uh, we had the public revelations of the the stealth bombers. Exactly, yeah. The mm. stealth fighters have been in uh, mm. they've been in development since the 1960s. So yeah. stuff we're finding about now has been in development for a couple of decades with DARPA. So it's it's an important book, and I highly recommend it. The Pentagon's Brain by Annie mm. Jacobson. Good. But she reports that one of the things that they found in Vietnam, uh, and it's a program that has been. Uh, repeated in the uh, conflict in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq was the use of sociologists to go out and try to figure out, you know, why we aren't winning the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese people, or, you know, you basically fill in the blank people, you know, why aren't we winning the hearts and minds of the Iraqi people? Why aren't we winning the hearts and minds of the Afghan people? Um, And their reports were basically telling uh, the the Pentagon uh, and the white house uh, say, for example, in Vietnam, we've moved these people into these supposed uh, uh, safe enclaves behind a wall, but we've moved them away from their territory, their uh, hereditary lands. We've moved them away from the graves of their ancestors. We've moved them away from their fields where they were growing the crops that they needed to eat, and we've walled them up behind these walls. And, oh, by the way, the South Vietnamese government and military is corrupt and is extorting money from these people. They hate the South Vietnamese, and they hate us for supporting the South Vietnamese. Um, and sociologists making similar reports out of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, we're, we're basically uh, seen as a, uh, a, a uh, an occupying force, an occupying army. And even the ones who don't hate us understand that someday we're going to go home. And when we go home, the Taliban is going to move right in and anybody who collaborates is going to be executed. And yet those kind of reports don't make it up the chain of command or they're dismissed by the military because they believe that, well, we just need to show these people who's boss. Well, these are sort of things that I think uh, we have to keep in mind when we're, uh, like especially in the West, sending our military in to do the these sort of jobs and this sort of work, is that they're actually dealing with real flesh and blood people because if you get the extreme end of uh, people in the West, and I am talking about the extreme who say, oh, just go in and bomb everyone, you know, and that, that, yeah. that'll, that'll solve the problem. 
Um, but we come back from it a little bit. I think all of us have to realize that we're dealing with real people. And a couple of things you've outlined are the mistakes that empires, now I'm not saying United States is an empire, please don't misunderstand that, but then the mistakes. It, it is an empire. It's, it's, <laughs> you're making the same mistakes that Rome made 2,000 right. years ago. This is where I was going. I was going to go, this is where the major empires all down through history, this is where they've gone wrong, and this is where they've crumbled. Uh, Cliff, would you agree with that one? Absolutely. And, and yeah, I would call the U.S. an empire. Uh, we, we, we are, in fact, as far as I'm concerned, the capital of the world. That's, that's the way I see our role right now. And I, I don't think the whole world likes that, but it's a fact. Uh, it really, the buck starts and stops here. And, uh, and China, whether or not they like it, uh, you know, they have to face that fact. Uh, we sneeze, the world gets its cold. It's way it is. Well, well, the other thing too, and um, I'm, I'm not sure if many people in the United States realise, is that uh, Australia is there right beside you, and we have not long ago started uh, running, uh, you know, uh, sorties of bombing missions into Syria as well. Uh, so, you know, for the most part, uh, if you just have a speaking generally, uh, since World War Two, Australia has tended to follow United States into war rather than Great Britain, as we used to do. A good example is Vietnam War. You brought it up a couple of times there, Derek. Uh, it was the Australians and the New Zealanders who went to Vietnam with you guys, not the Brits. And that, that, that's true. And, and not only that, uh, it, you know, you think about it, we really do have a lot in common. Because mm. we were, well, well, you know, we were colonized for, uh, as, you know, uh, we were we were all prisoners. And we were sent uh, yeah. overseas, and uh, they wanted to get rid of us. And uh, that's, that's how they did it. <laughs> they well, they well, broadened their empire. That's right. Well, if you look into the roots of the Virginia Company, that was all, that was all uh, uh, prisoners and that. And then they got a better right. idea and found Australia and we thought, well, we'll, we'll plant even more there. So it just continued. But, um, yeah. but as Christians, you know, hmm. the, the sad thing is that as Christians, we, we tend uh, here in the United States to be very supportive of the military. And... Uh, and I think that's rightly so. I think especially now with our all-volunteer military, those who enter the military typically are doing so right. uh, because they, they genuinely desire to serve and they believe in they, – they believe, I think, that they're serving some of those noble ideals that we've been told uh, the United States stands for, you know, truth and justice and, and freedom. And, and yet when we get over there, we find that it's a very different situation. First of all, we're dealing with different cultures that we don't relate to at all. And because of there's the, the cultural disconnect, you know, things are lost in translation, and we wind up having to resort to um, strong-arm tactics to try to pacify the situation. But again, the people, even the people who would be inclined to support us because they just want to live peaceable lives with their, their you know, raise their children in, in safety and security, know that once we finally go home, and we will go home someday, that those who are just waiting in the backgrounds, fighting this sort of fourth-generational warfare, this uh, asymmetric warfare that we, we still haven't gotten a handle around, uh, our, our heads around, uh, will return and will punish those who collaborated with the Americans and the Australians and the, uh, the Canadians. Well, the Canadians have gone home now. Yeah, no, look, I, I agree. And I just, I, what's, that, what's that meme that, that sometimes does around, you know, I, I support the troops, but not necessarily the government that sends them into war. I think that one suits me because uh, each and every one of these men and women who, you know, they, they strap on the colours and, uh, and, and go off to war, 
I'm I'm certain all of them are doing it for the right reasons, and they're the people that I support because I. Yeah. I, I think a lot of them are not 100% aware aware what's going on, but they they still believe they're doing the right thing. So um, that's where I stand. And, and, and you know, we, we call them diggers here in Australia. I support all our diggers over the uh, last hundred or so years that have gone out and, and you know, fought under that flag. Um, but they haven't always been it, – it hasn't always been for the correct reasons. So um, – and, and I'm sure – you know, a lot of Americans would be awake to that point now as well. Not everyone in America is going to be gung-ho, let's go over and kill everybody for sure. Right. And that's kind of led to the uh, real incremental policies that we followed in in the Middle East here recently. The president just announced he's going to send 50, 50 U.S. special ops troops, special forces, Green Berets, to Syria to serve as uh, advisors. Um and even with that, I mean, the, the resistance to getting more troops involved, putting more troops into harm's way among the American public is so strong that even that led to the press, which typically leans left and would typically support um, and give President Obama the benefit of the doubt, really grilled his press secretary a week ago Friday. Uh, so wait a minute. Now, the president said like 16 different times he wasn't going to put boots on the ground in Syria. And yet now he's deploying 50 special forces troops to Syria. How is that not boots on the ground? Um the problem is those 50 guys are probably going to serve as a tripwire, meaning one or two of them will get shot, killed, uh, possibly, or, or a number of them will get caught up in a firefight. And then suddenly we'll be compelled to send thousands of troops back to the fray. Uh, now, as, as Christians, I think we have to ask, you know, is this something we really can support? Um, it, it's really a difficult situation. There's no good answer, no easy answer here, because, again, the Christian communities in the Middle East, some of the oldest Christian communities in the world, I mean, was it Antioch, Syria, was where Christians first began to be called Christians. The Assyrian communities in northern Iraq, you know, in the Nineveh Plain, their communities have been absolutely destroyed. Mosul, which is essentially across the river from the ruins of Nineveh, uh, was taken by the Islamic State last summer. And for the first time in 2,000 years, there were no Christians in uh, Nineveh, Mosul. Um, what do we do about that? I mean, do we do we literally go in and conquer the place and demand that the Christians have a place there? How do we deal with this? Um, I talked with Colonel Bob McGinnis, who's a Pentagon strategist, retired U.S. Army, but he's still uh, on the payroll as a strategist and an analyst for the Pentagon, has advocated in his new book, Never Submit, that we... Uh, arm the Christian militias in those areas so they can defend themselves. You know, even though the Christian community in, in Iraq has dropped from like, what, one and a half million to like 200,000, you know, the ones that are left, let's, let's arm them so they can defend themselves. But the Kurds don't want that. And the Kurds have been our only, the only effective fighting force in that area against the Islamic State. But we can't arm the Kurds openly because the Turks consider them a terrorist organization. In fact, uh, the uh, Kurdistan Workers Party, the PKK, is also considered a terrorist organization by the U.S. State Department. So who do we back in that? Or, and as Christians, how do we support this? You know, it's it's really bizarre. And, and the other thing is that uh, now it's special forces there on the ground in Syria. Uh, we're supporting the uh, so-called moderate rebel groups that the Russians are bombing. So what are, and we promised these guys we would protect them against airstrikes, thinking that they would only be uh, bombed by the Syrian air force. But now that the Russians are bombing them, what does that mean? We're going to start shooting down Russian planes. We just, the U S air force just deployed a group of F 15s, F 15 fighters to uh, the uh, air base in the Turkey, Inserlik. Uh 
and I didn't grasp the significance of this right away, but uh, come to find out that the the F-15 deployment is significant because the F-15 is only equipped with air-to-air weaponry. The only other air force, aside from the Turks and, and the Australians over Syria, would be the Russians. So draw your own conclusions. Yes, because that means uh, they're there to take out uh, other fighter or, or, or bombers. Um, exactly. Yeah, and they're not F-16s. Uh, Cliff, right. you, had, you were going to come in? Yeah, there's, uh, there's a few things there. Um, when, when Derek and I uh, first talked on the air on his program uh, a couple of years ago, uh, one of the things I was looking for was, uh, was uh, how we might enter into this conflict. And, and the thing was is that Obama, Obama didn't want to face Russia right away. So, so Erdogan had to keep coming up with uh, ways of trying to bring us in. And and he, uh, Erdogan is the uh, the dictator of Turkey, actually, uh, although he calls himself president. Uh, but he he kept trying to find ways to bring us in. He kept saying, "Well, they did this, and they did this, and they, they did this, and they finally they used gas, right?" And and it was he was the one that used the gas. And he uh, he tried and tried and tried to get us in, but we weren't coming in because Russia sent their ships down to the ports in Syria, and they sent Spetsnaz in and, and, and to, into uh, Syria. So we weren't going to go in and confront the, 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 the uh, Russians, which was, which was smart. Which was, that, was a, that was probably the smartest move that, that, that Obama did. But the fact is, is that he has done all these other wars all over the world. I mean, in, in Asia, and, in, and particularly in Africa. There have been so many wars that have gone unreported, and the, and the press has turned their heads and turned their heads and turned their heads and turned their heads. Now that we've got Syria, this is high profile, you know, and and it, and uh, not only that, the Jewish community is all all up in arms because because this is all going on, and so what what now becomes a really glaring uh, problem for us worldwide is the fact that we have given up the moral high ground that comes with uh, our ideals, our Republican ideals, our, our ideals of freedom, of uh, free speech, of freedom of everything, of the press, the ideas of equality, you know, uh, all these ideals that we have that we aren't living up to at home, not to mention abroad. So so now this is uh, this has become something that the press can no longer ignore. And, and now they have to report it. So, so the, the, I think the, I think you're going to see a, a kind of a sea change in, in uh, the, the way uh, things have been reported for this president, because they they have been really really kind to him, whereas the world has been very uh, they were kind to start with, but they didn't see enough change in the way we acted towards them. We were still doing the same thing for the same reasons. You know, it always came down to money. Well, I certainly hope you're enjoying our discussion here with Derek. Uh, don't forget. You can go to our website, www.lightflintradio.com, for more shows, more episodes from Light Flint Radio. The music used here in this episode is courtesy of Acrolith. Just go to acrolith.net. And, of course, for Derek's website that will lead you to all of Derek's many other websites, just go to pidradio.com. Now back to the discussion with Derek, Cliff, and myself. I saw a story this week that I thought was really intriguing as we, we try to figure out where things go from here in, in Syria. And that is uh, 
when Benjamin Netanyahu went to Moscow and talked with uh, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, a few weeks ago, just after Russia announced its involvement in Syria, um, in fact, this was uh, published in the Australian, uh, Garth. Uh, I saw a, uh, a columnist in the Australian said that his sources indicated that what was going on was some negotiation over Russian involvement in the Levi- Leviathan gas fields out in the Mediterranean. Um, it's a project that was uh, begun, I think uh, the American uh, firm Noble Energy has about a 40% stake in this project. Um, but there was an Australian firm, I believe, that uh, was supposed to be part of this, and they backed out. Uh, in 2012, Gazprom, which is the Russian um, national, uh, I, I think it's nationally owned, it's uh, uh, owned by the state, uh, their big energy firm, bid for a stake in this Leviathan field, which is supposed to have a huge re- reserve of natural gas. Um, and they were beat out. But apparently, according to this columnist in The Australian, uh, Putin basically said to Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, we can guarantee that Hamas, Hezbollah, or any other group will never, ever sabotage any of the work in the Leviathan field. Now, Hezbollah has uh, claimed that the Leviathan field is actually in Lebanese territorial waters and so belongs to them. I think what's going on, uh, assuming that everything we need to know about global politics we can learn from watching The Godfather is that Vlad is saying, you know, let us buy a stake in the Leviathan field and that'll be protection money, basically, for your project there. Now, add to that the recent report that Israel has found a potentially huge reserve of oil in the Golan Heights. According to the press release, normally around the world, when you hit a strata of oil-bearing rock uh, below the surface, it's about, um, what do they say? It's normally about 10 meters, so about 30 feet, uh, about 30 feet uh, deep. Uh, this one they're saying is running about 100 meters deep. I mean, the, the strata is about 100 meters across, uh, wide. In other words, 10 times bigger than your typical oil strike around the world. Could potentially supply all of Israel's oil needs for generations to come. Now, the rest of the world considers the Golan Heights part of Syria, that it's occupied territory. It doesn't belong to Israel. Speculation now. A couple of interesting things. If Russia is, in fact, negotiating for a share of the Leviathan field, um, and let me let me add one more thing here because it, it won't make sense unless I take a step back. Uh, there's some speculation, and it, this seems to make more sense than just simple sectarian strife. I mean, the Shias and the Sunnis parted company about, what, 1,400 years ago, and they've been kind of fighting each other for 1,400 years. So why, why this sudden flare-up in 2011? Well, in 2009, the nation of Qatar uh, approached Bashar Assad and... Um, asked if he would be willing to let them run a gas pipeline from the Persian Gulf, where Gutter has got uh, its uh, uh, you know, wells in a field in, in the Persian Gulf, through Jordan, on into Syria, and then into the Mediterranean, and then on to Europe from there. Now, remember that Russia right now has a lion's share of the natural gas market for Europe. Uh, it gets cold in Europe in the wintertime, and they need a lot of natural gas to stay warm. And it gives... Vladimir Putin a lot of clout because if the Europeans don't play ball, he can raise the rates or shut off the pipeline, which he's done in the past, especially with Ukraine. Um, so this would basically run a pipeline from the uh, a, a huge field in the Persian Gulf to Europe and cut into Russia's market share. 
uh, Assad declined to participate. This was 2009. Declined to participate and shortly thereafter announced that they would, in fact, be participating in a uh, so-called Islamic pipeline running from the east side of the Persian Gulf, where Iran is also tapping into that same field, running from Iran through Iraq and to Syria. Now, Russia has been... Yeah, Russia has been an ally and supporter of both Iran and Syria for many years. So apparently that was more acceptable to the Russians than to than, than this other pipeline that would have cut them out of the loop. Um, and it was shortly after Syria said, no, no, we're going to go with this other pipeline from Iran. Or you might even call it a Shia pipeline instead of an Islamic pipeline. Um, that the uh, natives in Syria began getting restless and rose up in revolt. Now... Fast forward to 2012, Russia talking to Israel, perhaps, about a stake in the Leviathan field. Is Russia willing, perhaps, to throw Iran under the bus and forego a share of that uh, so-called Islamic pipeline if Israel will let Russia have a piece of the action in the Leviathan field? I I think I might have something to add to that. Uh, I know that Turkey was also involved in a lot of the negotiations that have been going on with this. And and one of the things they've been doing is they've been taking a, they've been doing pipelines with uh, with uh, Iran, even though that's not supposedly legal, right? Um, and and that was uh, part of the uh, the corruption charges that was brought against Erdogan uh, in 2013, right towards the end of the year. And, and this is this ties in kind of with why he's been shooting people in the streets. Uh, he he was uh, he was he was buying Iranian uh, petroleum uh, with gold, and that's how that that was how he was uh, 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 what what do you call it? laundering the gold the, the money was through the gold market, and we had that adjustment in December of 2013 because of Erdogan doing that. Now huh. we didn't we didn't go after him on that because. Uh, we were hoping that his ties with Iran might uh, help us to kind of work out a deal with the Iranians, like 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 we ended up doing. So we didn't we didn't bring all that up when when, when he was running for election. We we kind of buried it in the news. And, but the thing is, is that that's where that came from. He has been trying to pipeline, put all the pipelines going through Istanbul, and. And, uh, and and that might explain why he's in Syria right now, you know, at least at least give an economic reason why he's there. So so I I, I could see where this uh, this whole thing, you know, with uh, the everybody kind of jockeying around on on that Leviathan field because that's supposed to be huge. Yes. Uh, yes. Is, is that uh, is that you know that, that 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 does explain Turkey's presence there? It explains Russia's presence there. It explains our presence there. Right. <laughs> and, uh, it also explains Iran's presence there. So we we have everybody kind of coming together, and uh, you know, it, it, you could end up in a in a, in a dogfight. I, I think that has something to uh, that, that has explanatory power. To borrow a phrase, um, now the the uh, this this new gas or rather oil discovery in the Golan Heights. I just have to wonder: is it possible? that uh, the oil discovery there, which, again, in the eyes of the rest of the world, is located in, in on land that should belong to Syria, would that constitute a hook in the jaw to pull Russia even further into Syria and that uh, conflict? 
Uh, that may be a kind of far-fetched, and I, I don't, I, I can't envision in my mind how that would lead Russia into direct conflict with uh, uh, with Israel. But it, it, uh, if it took, uh, the land of Magog to be Turkey rather than Russia, uh, then I could see that uh, some some possible uh, implications there uh, for a, uh, a regional war that would fulfill prophecy. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, uh, I knew you would be thinking that, Cliff, because we've talked about that before. I was going to say, just get winding back a little bit, um, uh, Derek, you brought the Australian angle into it earlier as well. Uh, we're a major exporter of gas to, uh, to China. It's actually... Um, uh, piped from uh, western, far western Queensland to one of our ports on the coast. It's hundreds and hundreds of kilometres uh, of pipe. And um, I think there's a new one being built, but there's there's a couple of them. And then it gets loaded onto these massive ships and, you know, exported to China. But um, uh, recently uh, I, I, I read that Russia is going to do a gas deal with China that may, may, may put... Uh, the kibosh and all of that, and then it's billions of dollars of investment that Australia is putting into this. So Russia's playing um, in the Middle East, but also in you know the Asia Pacific as well with gas. So that tells me they've got a heck of a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, the the article that I found in the Australian was actually uh, a commentator for Israel's Channel Two News, but he was uh, okay. apparently yeah. in Sydney when he made this comment. This was right. back on October twentieth. Uh, Russia wants to be a major partner in Israel's offshore Leviathan natural mm. gas. Uh, Ehud Ya'ari, senior Middle East commentator for Israel's Channel 2 News. So uh, Woodside was the name of the company that That's was... Right. Um, yeah, that's an Australian yeah. company. Yeah, it's a well-known one. Yeah. 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 And uh, again, in 2012, Gazprom bid for a stake but was beat out by Woodside, but then Woodside pulled out of the venture last year. So uh, yeah. this, uh, again, it's, it's just strange because even a year ago, I, I could not have envisioned a scenario that would have brought Turkey into conflict with Israel or Russia into conflict with Israel. Um, again, this looks like this may be a way that uh, this uh, gas deal, if this, if this is accurate, um, may actually bring Russia into partnership with Israel, which would throw a lot of people's prophetic uh, timelines yep. completely yep. out of the back. <laughs> okay, you got to rewrite the Ezekiel 38 book now. Uh, but uh, the, the fact that, uh, you know, there, there was a gentleman I, I interviewed a couple of times some years ago, probably four or five years ago, a gentleman named Sam Batterman, who was a, uh, and, and may still be, a software engineer, I believe, with Microsoft. But he wrote, wrote a couple of novels that were really good. One was called Wayback, about uh, the invention of a time machine and then going back to, to the time of Noah and, and seeing the ark actually under construction. His second book, called Maximal Reserve, was about an Israeli oil strike that suddenly turned the balance of power in the world on its head. And frankly, if this strike in the Golan Heights is as big as some think it is, that could be exactly what's happening. And it would be good for Israel itself because uh, uh, gas or fuel or petrol, whatever you want to call it, is awfully expensive in Israel. It's really, really expensive. Well, and more than that, in, in terms of uh, global, the global economy, yeah. Uh, yeah. the hydrocarbons are the, the coin of the realm. Yeah, yeah. Cliff, comment? Um, I really don't have anything to add. I, it, 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 you know, I'm just standing here, sitting here uh, nodding my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, me too. I'm sitting here nodding my head as well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really astonishing just watching what's going on. If you it pay is. attention 
because the major media is not paying attention to this. They're too busy uh, here in the U.S. talking about Donald Trump's latest statements and, uh, oh, Ben Carson said this according to Politico. Oh, wait a minute. No, he didn't actually. Politico made it up. You know, it just we're, we're caught up in the political theater getting ready for our presidential election, and there are some uh, sea changes taking place out there on the global political stage. And, and uh, these major uh, energy strikes by Israel are, are potentially game-changing. Uh, but then beyond that, and shifting gears, perhaps, you know, the whole transhumanist movement and, and the, the potential redefinition of what it means to be human that's sort of taking place sort of behind the scenes. Most people aren't aware of the transhumanist movement, what it means or how it could impact their lives. Um, you know, there, there are some things taking place right now that fundamentally redefine the world as we know it within within a generation. I was going to say, yeah, let's talk about that a bit because um – uh, slowly but surely, this uh, idea of uh, transhumanism is building, but you have to go digging for it. Or sometimes, you know, the odd thing will pop up on uh, a, a news, but it won't be, you know, it won't be the full story. And you go, oh, that's what that is. A lot of it, though, too, Derek, is also in uh, the some of the latest movies, you know, so the last four or five years. Um, yeah. There's a lot of transhumanist themes in films. Uh, that I've noted, and only because I was being interested in, obviously listening to say Tom Horn and and people like yourself that have made me aware of it. Um, how far down the track do you think we actually are uh, on this uh, transhuman transhumanism uh, front? Well, it's a lot closer than we think. Uh, this is really an area of Sharon's expertise, which is why uh, you know she is uh, such an important component to what. We're, what Skywatch TV is doing. And, and uh, in fact, the, the forthcoming documentary, uh, Inhuman, which comes out in, oh, well, uh, maybe a week or so. Uh, I know it's at the master, mastering company right now. They're making the duplicates right now. Um, 17th is the official release date. Sharon uh, was a major contributor in terms of analysis, but she also did the voiceover for the movie. So um, you get, a, you, know, you get a, a big dose of Sharon, and the world gets to find out what I already know is that she's the smartest person I know. So uh, <laughs> very good. Uh, I love it. I love it. She, tell, she, tell us about tell us about the 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 uh the movie itself, Derek, now that you brought it up. Well, this is something that Tom has been working on for a while. As you mentioned, Tom has been talking about the trans movement for years. He was really an early adopter on it. I have to give him uh props. He I, I first heard about the movement really from him. Uh he's also the first person I know of the, to to say the word uh uh, uh dominionism within my range of hearing. So, uh, you know, he's a, a very perceptive guy at discerning trends that are going to have a major impact on um, humanity in, in, as a whole, but Christians in particular. Uh, they've been working on this film for quite some time, conducting interviews over the last four or five years. Uh, several years ago at the uh, Future Congress in Branson, they had uh, cameras set up and interviewed a number of the speakers there, including Sharon, for the for the film. Uh, this year, we partnered with uh, Gans Shimura of Canary Cry Radio, who is a gifted uh, filmmaker and editor in his own right. And he basically took the pieces and the script and he put it all together into the film that is being uh, finalized right now. Like I said, it's in the uh, the final uh, duplication process right now. Um, but they, Tom and, and uh, his, uh, his team, which has basically been his family, uh, at least until they brought me and Sharon on board uh, back in March, uh, went and talked with a number of um, people who are involved uh, on both sides of the transhumanist movement. Uh, the pro-transhumanists include uh, James Hughes, who was uh, uh, 
forget what his current role is, but he's he's uh, one of the leaders in the uh, what, what they call the H plus move, movement, which stands for Humanity Plus. Uh, also, Natasha Vita Moore, who is a uh, uh, the chairperson of uh, H plus, which used to be the World Transhumanist Association. Um, James Hughes is executive director for the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, and uh, their website ieet.org is one to keep uh, watch on because a lot of pro-transhumanist articles are published there. So it's a good place to go to get a, a, a sense of the pulse of what's happening in the transhumanist movement. Uh, so, you know, James Hughes was interviewed for the film, Natasha Vita Moore, and then a bioethicist, uh, Wesley J. Smith, who is probably the most insightful analyst of uh, bioethics, uh, especially regarding the transhumanist movement uh, today. Um, and he approaches it from a, a non-religious standpoint. I don't, I, frankly, I don't know what his faith is. I suspect I know, but it, it's something he doesn't talk about publicly because he doesn't want to be uh, his analysis of the events to be disqualified on the basis of his professed religious faith. Okay, um, He looks at it from an ethical standpoint and is an excellent and insightful speaker uh, on this particular topic. Uh, then others like uh, Chuck Missler, Noah Hutchings, uh, the late Noah Hutchings, um, Sharon, of course, is in there, Paul Hughes, uh, Chris Putnam. So a number of speakers talking about the concerns that we have uh, regarding the transhumanist movement. Uh, Don't forget Carl Sykrib. Yeah, well, Carl is excellent. Sadly, he's not in the film, but uh, Carl is, is also, uh, as is, uh, um, I would add, uh, uh, Patrick Wood. Uh, very insightful analysts regarding this topic, but uh, the the film fi- it finally times out at about three hours, so it's it's rather long, but it's a rather exhaustive look at both sides of the issue, and uh, it kind of chronicles Tom's journey in trying to find out what this is all about and where he comes down on the issue. Uh, it's extremely well done, and I think there's a lot uh, to be proud of uh, regarding this film. And again, it's it's fairly balanced. Now, it certainly expresses Tom's own opinion, which is that this is a uh, uh, a movement that threatens hu- what it means to be human. I mean, uh, we've, we've rejected the definition of humanity as created by God. You know, uh, be, the, the transhumanists, for the most part, believe that uh, uh, God doesn't exist. And not all of them are atheists, but many of them are. And so because humanity is not created in God's image because there's no God, we are free to redesign humanity according to our own specifications and our own desires. Um, and but but there is a there is an angle that uh, that that uh, actually is moral and, uh, and and positive from our perspective in that a lot of this has come out of uh, advances that have come with technology to to actually uh, help people like paraplegics and stuff to, oh, to have the, the walking things. Absolutely. I mean, there's, and Tom mentions that in the film. He said, you know, there are a lot that the transhumanists get right. And for the most part, the transhumanists are very much uh, motivated by a desire to do good for their fellow man, you know, to, to, see, the lively, uh, to see the lives of people uh, in, enhanced, to in, improve the quality of life. That was a phrase I was searching for, uh, of, of people. But in, in trying to redefine what it means to be human, they are essentially ushering in a 21st century uh, eugenics movement um, in, in the name of trying to guarantee the long-term survivability of the human race. They are essentially, without even, I think, recognizing that this is what they're doing, uh, pushing toward 
a modern eugenics movement. And in fact, we've already seen this from some in the uh, transhumanist movement. Uh, Zoltan Istvan, the author of The Transhumanist Wager, which has been called Atlas Shrugs, or Atlas Shrugged for the uh, transhumanist movement, um, has publicly called for a discussion of whether we need to restrict human breeding based on a belief that all human suffering, um, wars and poverty and sickness and disease are caused by overpopulation. We need to curb the population, and by restricting population, we should limit it to only the most fit. Well, again, that's, the, that's what the eugenics movement was trying to do 80 years ago. They even used the same phrase, transhumanism is self-directed evolution. If you go back and look at the publications of the eugenics movement of the 20th century, that is exactly how they promoted their science, self-directed evolution. We need to take control over the next step that humanity makes up the evolutionary ladder. But of course, those who get left behind are the ones who are considered less fit. And who gets to decide who is less fit? Well, in 1930s Germany, it was Adolf Hitler and the SS. <laughs> okay, who takes that role in the 21st century? I, my, my sense of this is, is that the transhumanists are either blind or naive when it comes to proposing a solution to the problems that humanity faces. And clearly, there are many problems that humanity uh, faces. Um, but as Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. Why? Not because we haven't figured out how to distribute goods and services uh, uh, efficiently, but because there are always those who want to control others. They want to get for themselves as much as they can, at the exp- and, and they don't care at, at whose expense. Um, yeah, there's an economic uh, dimension to poverty. Yes, exactly. And by the same token, the uh, the guys behind the Communist uh, Manifesto, Marx and Engels, uh, identified a number of problems with the capitalist system. Those in power tend to consolidate power. Well, okay, yeah, you're right. And they begin oppressing other people and taking away uh, goods and services that uh, could help to feed the poor and, and, and house the homeless and so forth. But under a capitalist system or a socialist system, that human desire for those in power to consolidate power doesn't go away. It isn't magically cured. I mean, even as a uh, kind of naive 19-year-old in, in college, I realized, wait a minute, the problem here is the human heart. It's sin. That's the problem. And transhumanism exactly. does, that. Transhumanism does, does no more to address that than socialism or communism does. So you're still going to... The problem is... The problem is that while uh, <laughs> you're busy enhancing humanity, what you're doing is giving the next Adolf Hitler superpowers. That's right. And you know what um, is going on right now, Derek? It's just occurred to me. Um, we've come full circle because we talked about, uh, even before we hit record, you know, we were talking about the preaching of the gospel is, uh, you know, our raison d'etre, our reason for being. It's what we should be about, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, we... We're back to that again. That that is the answer, um, and it sounds you know I don't even want like to use the word, but it sounds trite to say. It, but the three of us know, and I'm sure most of our audience know, Jesus is the answer, and putting in uh, into action uh, the tenets that Jesus preached is the way to solve the world's problems. But that's probably not going to happen until Jesus returns. Amen. That's exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Amen. Mm. 
Sorry about that, but yeah, I, it just hit me because, you know, I thought, oh, we've just gone complete circle from even before we hit record a couple of hours ago, Derek and I had a bit of a chat before you <laughs> came on, Cliff, yeah. Well, when it comes to socialism, I, I, I'm an ex-socialist, and the problem with it is just really glaring. I mean, you know, you, you're, taking, you're taking money away and you're sent, putting it in one place. Well, what happens to that money? The people in power take it. Yeah. Again, those in power tend to consolidate power. Uh, it uh, it's not a problem of of distribution. It's a problem of sin. Uh, and that that coming back to the even back to uh, uh, dominionist theology, that's the problem here in the United States. The problem is not that uh, we Christians have failed to take the uh, mountains, the cultural mountains of uh, the media and religion and and the government. The the problem is sin. It's the human heart. In America, the reason that Abortion is legal is because not enough people understand why, according to God, it shouldn't be. It's not that we don't have the right judges in place. It's because if 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 people didn't desire the the, uh, the access to the to the, the to the procedure, uh, the, you know, it, it could it could be legal and nobody would nobody would pursue it. it you know, the, the law wouldn't make any difference. The problem is the human heart, not uh, the right legal code. Exactly, and and uh, the thing is, is that uh, when we when we look to place blame, you know, it's really easy to say, you know, this guy did it, that guy did it, the other guy did it, you know, this party did it, the other party did it. Really, what we need to do is take a long look in the mirror. Amen. We did it. We did it. We we get the government we deserve because we end up voting him in. And, and and just because we think the politics might might be the solution, we prove that it's not. We we it, it, and it, it is it clearly is. It, it's us. It, it starts with each one of us. We all need to take a long, good look at ourselves and, and see how we we contributed to the problem because we did. And and I, and I think the other thing is too. And and um, I'm sort of glad we this has come at this point in the discussion. But I think the other thing too is that uh, uh, we as individual believers have to realize um, we we have to put those talents that we've been given into action and, and not sit back. Um, it's not as if as any of us sitting here are going to be able to solve the whole world's problems. It's not as if any of us are going to be able to uh, indeed save millions of people. It's just probably not going to happen. But the point I'm, I guess I'm coming to is we've, we've, we as individuals have got to make a start and work in your own area, no matter what that is, one by one, witnessing to people, one by one, helping people, whatever your talent is, you know, if, if you've got, if your talent is to be a podcaster, well, be a podcaster and do it with all your heart and, uh, unto the Lord, um, but if it's in other areas, like if you're a person with a lot of money, well, hey, you should be, you know, steering that money to those who need it. Um, so, so Derek, can you um, let us know where people can find you on the net? Uh, obviously, I'll put links in uh, uh, in the show notes, but just let people know where they can find you and Sharon on the internet, because uh, I know you've got a number of websites. So, give us the the main ones. Yeah, we, we have, <laughs> there's a few. Yeah, by law, uh, probably the the easiest one to find is pidradio.com. Uh, pidradio.com, and from there, Sharon's got her site. I've got my site. We've got the uh, view from the bunker uh, site, which is vftb.net, uh, the interview program. Uh, but again, all, you know, all of our main sites are, are referenced 
and linked from PIDradio.com. And, of course, then uh, the, uh, the new ministry is skywatchtv.com. Now, just one question, though, Derek, before I let you go. Is it compulsory to bring your own dachshund when you come to that website? Uh, <laughs> if not, we've got one we can loan you for, you know, we get you a loaner. <laughs> Cliff, thoughts? Last thoughts? Uh, uh, I'm a blessed Sam. He, he, he wasn't on today. He didn't. He didn't get into it. No, he's not. It was actually a chilly morning here, so we actually got a fire in the in the fireplace here in the new bunker. Uh, first time we lit, lit a fire, and he seemed to be enjoying lying out there in front of the fire. So, oh, I'll bet I can I can picture that in my mind perfectly. <laughs> now, um, while we're talking about them, um, uh, neighbors of ours are uh, not not far off breeding, um, having their first uh, litter. And, um, of course, they've said to us, uh, how many do you want? <laughs> because um, g- uh, growing up as a kid, uh, we had a few dogs, but the one I do remember was our little dachshund or dash hound or whatever you can call them. And uh, I-, I absolutely love them. But uh, And they know that, you see, because we've talked about it. And so now they're kind of saying, well, uh, Garth, it's time. Uh, do you want to put your order in? Do you want a pair? <laughs> <laughs> So, well, I'll tell you what, dachshunds are, are unique. You can, uh, it's like the saying goes, you can always tell a dachshund, but you can't tell them much. Uh, <laughs> I like we, we went out the other morning, about three in the morning. Um, he woke up and I could hear him, you know, tap, tap, tapping across the floor out, uh, outside our door. So I realized he had to go outside. So he's getting older now. Sam is about 15, we think. And, um, uh, we've got a, uh, a deck on the back that's got a number of steps to go down, and they're kind of steep, and especially when you're, he's, he's tired, he's stiff. He just, the front door, we've only got one step to go out the front. So now, again, we're out in the country, all right? The closest house about a half mile away. We're in a, in a very rural area here, um, and we can, hear, we can hear the coyotes howling at night, okay? Uh, but I figure three in the morning, he's got to go outside. He's not going to want to go out and walk around. He's going to go out. He's going to you know, relieve himself, and then he's going to come back in. Well, Foolishly, I didn't put the leash on him. Opened the door. He immediately went, and he took off like somebody lit a rocket under his tail out the front door. And something rather large, uh, about calf height to me, and light-colored, went running off down the highway. Um, So suspect that uh, we saw a coyote or possibly a koi wolf, which is something, a new breed, a mixed breed, that uh, we're seeing spreading across the United States. Uh, Bigger than a, a coyote, not quite as as burly as a wolf, but apparently they're finding a niche in the ecosystem that they're really adapted to. And uh, they've been spotted. In the South yeah. Missouri. I'm just thankful that what it was, didn't stop to turn around and face his, uh, his uh, pursuer because Sam was all the way to the highway before I caught up to him. Um, and uh, whatever it was, was already out of sight. But, uh, uh, you know, that's that's the attitude of a dachshund. It's like the thing's three times bigger than me. Well, okay, that shouldn't take more than a minute. To... <laughs> I'll be back shortly. Yeah, them and Scotties. Yeah, yeah, those koi dogs are really bad. We we get them over here, uh, too. Uh, in fact, I, I can hear them at night uh, where I live out, outside of Springfield. And, uh, man, that'll chill your blood really well. Yeah. Yeah, they well they've also adapted well enough that they're uh, spreading through Chicago. Uh, in fact, there, we saw a, a documentary about the koi wolf not long ago, and uh, there's one in the Central Park Zoo or in the zoo at a zoo in New York, a Bronx Zoo maybe that was captured in Central Park. So uh, they are yeah, I believe that adapting to live in pretty close proximity to humans. So uh, anyway, Sam doesn't go out without a leash anymore, and it's more for uh, 
the protection surrounding wildlife than, uh, than for him. I was going to say for you, so you don't have to chase him. But uh, I was going That's to say, it, yeah. if he was here and you let him out and he didn't come back, he'd be definitely chasing kangaroos because uh, we've got them across the, in the paddock across the road. Uh, that, and, and That's a picture. Yeah, could you imagine it? <laughs> Especially if it was a big six-footer. <laughs> our, our, our neighbors to the back, uh, we, we have a, we're a uh, border on a cattle operation right across the back fence. You Here in the uh, hills of the Ozarks, it's really not conducive to farming because the terrain is not good for tractors. It's, it would be bad. But uh, there are cattle that come right up to our back fence, which is about 100 feet behind our deck. So he will go out there and he will bark at the cattle. And he, I, I just imagine in his mind he thinks he's hurting them. <laughs> <laughs> what? It really sounds uh, idyllic, to be honest. There'll be people listening to us be very jealous. Uh, but uh, I love living out in the bush myself, so uh, I know why you're doing it. But, um, yeah. Yeah, born and raised in Chicago, but I'm much happier being from Chicago than in Chicago. <laughs> okay. Final comments, Cliff? Especially anything about Chicago? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I love Chicago, but you know I love living in the country too. Yeah. I really do. I like to go there though. I, I, you know, it's great for culture. You know, the art, the music, and everything. But you know, there's nothing like living in the country. It really isn't. Yeah, I I think that's cool that all three of us actually do live in the bush, and uh, we're not exactly a hundred percent surrounded by neighbors. I reckon that's very cool. Uh, well, anyway, we'll, we'll wind it up there. Um, Derek, um, thanks very much for your time. I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation with uh, you and Cliff, so thanks for coming on board. And uh, uh, can we get you back on again sometime in the future? Anytime you like, brother. It uh, always a fascinating conversation. Uh, Cliff and I had the opportunity to get together a couple times when I was uh, traveling as an outside sales rep and had to uh, travel to uh, Springfield. Uh, on a regular basis there so a couple of times we'd stop and eat lunch and i'd wind up you know crossing some calls off my list today it's like well okay won't have time for that one now or that one that but uh, it was it was well worth it i miss having lunch with you i really do uh but maybe uh maybe i'll i'll make it down your way uh... anytime brother you're always welcome